Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the first Physics World Weekly podcast of 2022. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up, we're going to hear from two astronomers who have devoted much of their careers to the study of the atmosphere of Pluto, that distant and mysterious world. But first, on behalf of all my Physics World colleagues, I'd like to wish you a very happy new year. The first big story of 2022 is no doubt the James Webb Telescope, which was launched on the 25th of December. The telescope's sunshield has already been deployed, and astronomers will be on tenterhooks as the mission's huge mirror is unfolded over the next few days. You can read all about the mission in the January issue of the Physics World magazine, where the astronomy writer Keith Cooper describes the new cosmic dawn that the telescope will soon usher in. Keith's article draws on a series of blogs which appeared on the Physics World website just before Christmas. Just look for these online articles. They begin with the headline, The $10 Billion Gamble. Pluto has fascinated astronomers and the public alike since the dwarf planet was discovered in 1930. In this upcoming interview, Physics World's Margaret Harris meets two Pluto experts who explain what astronomers know about its changing atmosphere. The dwarf planet Pluto has an atmosphere. We've known this since the late 1980s when astronomers watched Pluto pass in front of a distant star and observed that the star's light dimmed gradually rather than all at once. But Pluto's atmosphere isn't static. It can change relatively quickly, within the time span of an astronomer's career, in fact. And here to tell us more about Pluto's changing atmosphere are two astronomers who've been involved in these observations for decades. They are Leslie Young and Elliot Young. They are both at the Southwest Research Institute, and they are siblings. Hello, Leslie. Hello, Elliot. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Margaret. Pleasure to be here. So, Leslie, I understand you were actually part of the team that made those original observations that found evidence for Pluto's atmosphere. Maybe you can start off by telling us about that measurement and how it happened. We observed uh, this Pluto occultation on the Kuiper Airborne Observatory, which was a modified cargo plane. Now, these days, we have SOFIA, which is a modified 747 has with a telescope uh, that was able to fly above the clouds and fly wherever you need it to go. That's very important because an occultation is like a solar eclipse. There's a shadow that's cast across the Earth. Instead of the shadow of the moon blocking the sun, in this case, it's the shadow of Pluto blocking the star, we were able to fly to some spot in the Pacific and watch Pluto pass in front of a star and see it gradually dim out. I was not even in graduate school at the time, but I was part of Jim Elliott's occultation team as a programmer. And I tell you that being on that airplane and seeing the star dim and knowing that we've rewritten all the textbooks, those were five minutes that changed my life. So now, Elliot, I want to bring you in here. Um, You've been involved in some much more recent measurements of Pluto's atmosphere. How is that different? The occultation we got in 2018, we had better information about where the shadow was going to be. 
because we just had a spacecraft go by Pluto. We knew where Pluto was really, really well. And there's a new catalog that describes star positions really well. So we actually got uh, to within about six kilometers of where we thought the center would be. It wasn't long ago, just a couple of years, where we'd be lucky to be closer than 300 kilometers. So it's been a drastic uh, improvement in how we do this. You know, we try and make a prediction where the shadow path will go. We send a bunch of people there. In 2018, we got a light curve with about uh, a, a dozen people close to what's called the central flash. They are pretty close to the center of the shadow. And when that happens, some of the light that passes through Pluto's atmosphere is refracted onto a, a region near the center. And if Pluto's atmosphere is a little bit squished, if it's a little bit oblate, the shape of that central bright area is kind of a diamond-shaped uh, pattern with four uh, sharp cusps. And you can see spikes happen uh, as you uh, sample the area near that, near that center shape. And if you have a couple of telescopes, you can get some really detailed information on the shape of Pluto's atmosphere, and you can probe a little bit lower. On Pluto, we now think we probe almost to the surface, and there's a possibility of getting information about little temperature inversions right near the surface. This is a great opportunity for citizen science. If we know we've got, let's say, an event in the Philippines or in Australia, you know, we, we try and recruit from the local astronomical societies and some people who do this often, and it makes all the difference in the world. Maybe you could tell us, kind of bring us up to speed with what we know about Pluto's atmosphere, what it's like. Sure. Pluto's atmosphere is similar to the Earth's in some ways. It's mostly nitrogen. It doesn't have much oxygen. It does have some methane and some carbon monoxide and some other species. What's, the, what's uh, different about Pluto's atmosphere from, let's say, the Earth is that Pluto's atmosphere, it, it's totally dependent on surface frost. If the surface frosts heat up a little bit, the vapor pressure above the frost increases, and that supports Pluto's atmosphere. On the Earth, we've got ice caps, but if the temperature of the ice caps changes a little bit, it's not going to change the nitrogen atmosphere. Mars, on the other hand, is a little bit similar. Mars has a carbon dioxide atmosphere, and to some extent, that atmosphere does change when the temperature of Mars's ice caps goes up or down. On, on Mars, the global pressure changes by about 25%. There are probably other things in the solar system that act the same way Pluto does. In other words, their atmospheres are supported by vapor pressures of, of ices. Triton, the uh, big satellite of Neptune, is one of them. And it's likely that objects in the outer solar system like Eris have vapor pressure-supported atmospheres. They're covered with ice and they appear to be really, really bright. And one explanation for that is that the atmospheres, let's say atmosphere of Eris, it increases when Eris gets close to the sun, and then it freezes out again. And that might be a reason why Eris appears to be so bright, because it's got clean frost plating out on the surface periodically. So we think that's why Pluto's bright. bright. And in fact, there was a paper uh, 1983 by Larry Trafton and Alan Stern called Why is Pluto Bright? that describes exactly this phenomena that Pluto's uh, atmosphere 
uh, freezes out onto the surface when it gets far away from the sun. And Pluto does get pretty far away from the sun. At its furthest um, furthest distance, it's about 50 astronomical units, 50 times the distance from the Earth to the sun. At its closest approach, it's less than 30. So that's a big difference. It's almost a factor of three in terms of how much energy Pluto receives from the sun. Uh, Pluto passed its closest point in around 1988. And since then, it's been moving away from the sun. We've been waiting for its atmosphere to cool and freeze out onto the surface and waiting. And now it looks like we finally have evidence that the turnaround is starting is starting to happen. Okay. And how did you get that evidence? What, what, what were you looking for? What sort of signature did you find? When uh, Pluto moves in, in front of a star, if Pluto had no atmosphere, the drop-off would be sudden. But because Pluto has an, an atmosphere... The atmosphere acts as kind of a lens, not a very high-quality lens. You wouldn't want to use it to image anything, but it does bend the rays from the star in a way that tell you just how uh, thick the atmosphere is at different altitudes. It gives you a good density profile. So as uh, we've watched occultations in 1988 and 2002 and 2007, you know, for about the last 30 years, We've seen that the atmosphere of Pluto looks like it's getting thicker and thicker, even though it's even though Pluto's moving away from the sun. And what does the very latest data tell us ha- is happening? You know, so what's what's going on in Pluto's surface? If you were there on the surface, what would you be seeing apart from your own imminent demise because it's so cold and no oxygen? Well, we do have winds and haze on Pluto. So you might see that it is very, the atmosphere at Pluto's surface is very thin. It's 10 microbars. So the pressure on the surface of the Earth is about a bar. So it's 100,000 times less dense than the surface of the Earth. In fact, it's right around uh, the edge of space that uh, spacecraft like uh, Blue Origin or uh, Virgin Galactic are flying up toward. So you would say, well, if it's the edge of space, how can you even talk about it having an atmosphere? The atmosphere, though, is thick enough that it, it's uh, you're still having a collisional atmosphere. The atoms, just like here at the surface of the Earth, the atoms are bouncing into each other before they go ballistic, right? On People like to study uh, what they call the lunar atmosphere, but that's an atmosphere where a molecule will leave the surface and fly in a parabolic uh, flight and then land again. So there are molecules there, but they don't interact uh, in the same way that they do in a thicker atmosphere. So on Pluto, the atmosphere is thick enough that you have winds and dynamics. You have the formation of complex uh, chemical molecules, and we've seen evidence for the hazes as well, which are more complex. We don't know exactly what they're made out of yet. So that's what you might see at the surface. Okay. And I think it, this came up when the, uh, the the little helicopter that's on Mars at the moment started flying, that, that flying on Mars is, is quite different from, from flying on Earth. I'm guessing that flying on Pluto would be even more sort of catastrophically difficult. To put it in, to put it in perspective, the surface atmosphere on Mars the density is about 1% of the Earth's. 
the surface atmosphere on Pluto, that is about a tenth of a percent of Mars. So, wow. uh, so balloons on on Pluto, not likely. Helicopters on on Pluto, not not likely. You'd have to invent something that that uh, your your balloon canopy would have to be very very light to even even consider getting something big enough with enough enough lift to uh, to fly. Elliot, how high do balloons fly on the Earth? Do you do you know what the highest is? Yeah, NASA's uh, high altitude balloon program regularly sends balloons to uh, about 30, uh, 35 kilometers high, 125,000 feet. And those are enormous balloons, basically the size of a cubic football field. And the stuff they're made out of is about as thick as saran wrap. It's pretty light. And the very lightest balloons and the very biggest balloons can get up to about 160,000 feet. Uh, we're, we're talking about you know, 35 or 38 kilometers altitude, uh, that the altitude on earth that's equivalent to surface pressures on, on Pluto. Leslie, do you happen to remember how high that is? Uh, it's about, um, 80 kilometers, 50 miles. So more than, more than twice as high and it, mm -hmm. atmospheres are exponential. So, uh, you know, the, the air is, it's a lot thinner up there, but still the atmosphere on Pluto completely dominates how the surface looks. Elliot talked a little bit about why is Pluto bright, that famous paper, and how those ideas might apply to other large bodies in the outer solar system like Eris. Because the atmosphere is supported by the surface pressure, you, if you have a disequilibrium between the energy lost due to thermal emission and the energy received from the sun, that difference is made up by sublimation or condensation and the latent heat of sublimation. So you can lose um, millimeters in a day, centimeters in a Pluto year, uh, and uh, you, don't, you don't have to change the amount of ice very much. As we all know, when we see frost on a window, a very small amount of new frost can completely change how a surface looks. So I mentioned your your siblings, and it has been interesting to sort of you know just watch this brief interview, the sort of dynamics between the two. Um, you know, what's it like working in the same field as as your brother or sister? You know, do you collaborate a lot, or do you each have your own niche or responsibilities? When we were in graduate school, Elliot concentrated much more on the surface, and I concentrated much more on the atmosphere. But we both were doing time critical things. So uh, as you as you uh, mentioned, I was on the 1988 Pluto occultation. So that was the critical timing of being in the right place at the right time to watch Pluto pass in front of a star. Elliot made the first high-resolution maps, some of the first high-resolution maps of Pluto, by the beautiful timing of watching Pluto's large moon Charon pass in front of Pluto. And if it passes in front of a particularly bright place, the combined light will be a little dimmer. He published uh, some of the maps that showed for the first time how much contrast there was on the surface. Uh, that wonderful contrast confirmed a few years ago when the New Horizons mission sent back those marvelous images. I heard that Elliot was dancing in the Keck control room when the far side images came down because it had dark, dark band near the equator, which is what Elliot mapped out. 
You want to confirm or deny that, Elliot? I was I was giving a talk at uh, an outreach talk in Hawaii, and I uh, didn't I didn't have much preparation, and I saw the the first maps, and I I did a quick and dirty overlay to see how they compared to other maps we'd gotten. Because Pluto's moon Charon is tidally locked, they're uh, in mutually synchronous orbits. Pluto and its moon Charon always show the same face to each other. When Charon moves in front of Pluto and lets you map Pluto's surface, you only get to map half of, of Pluto's surface. You get lots of tries. It happens over and over. So we had we had half of uh, Pluto's surface to compare with uh, approach maps from New Horizons. And it's it's uh, you know seeing something that you did 20 years earlier get confirmed or disproven. It, it's it doesn't happen that often in a in a career. And I would say it's a reason Leslie and I are in planetary science instead of studying active galactic nuclei. There's a chance that we can fly by Pluto. We're going to have to study galactic nuclei some other way. Another another thing is that in our solar system there are phenomena that happen on the timescales of decades, right? On the, the timescales of a career. And it lets you make a prediction 20 years uh, earlier and then see what happens 20 years later. Uh, for something like Pluto, that's really compelling. So you would say Pluto has a 248-year uh, 48 Earth year orbit around the sun. So really, how can you expect to see changes on the course of uh, you know a few decades? There's two things that are going for us. One is that the surface pressure is such a sensitive function of surface temperature. If you change the temperature of the nitrogen ice by just a degree and a half, the surface pressure will double. So uh, so you're looking for small changes. The other is to think about Pluto's subsolar latitude, sort of equivalent to what we call the season here on Earth. On Earth, we, we move a little bit closer to and a little bit farther from the sun. But the main thing that is changing the seasons is the tilt. And when does the sun uh, shine more directly over the northern hemisphere? You get northern hemisphere summer. Over the southern hemisphere, you get southern hemisphere summer. Pluto was at its equinox in 1989. So around equinox, as we all know here, when you're near equinox, the uh, subsolar latitude changes the most quickly. This ties us back to the variation that we saw on Pluto's surface. So we saw the hints 20 years ago of bright areas and dark areas. Later, when we discovered what the surfaces, uh, what the ices on Pluto were made out of, and mostly nitrogen and some methane and carbon monoxide, we could say perhaps the bright areas are covered with ices and the dark areas are free of ices. That makes a big difference because if the subsolar latitude falls over the areas where you have more of the ices, then it could raise the temperature even when you're moving further from the sun. And when we flew New Horizons past Pluto and we saw Pluto's heart, especially the left-hand side of Pluto's heart, the planes called Sputnik Planitia, we saw that there were these vast planes filled with nitrogen that were 
centered at about 20 degrees north of the equator. So that meant that even as we're passing by, uh, passing further from the sun, if the subsolar latitude moves from uh, equatorial to uh, slightly higher latitudes, then you could end up having, on the average, more sunlight over the nitrogen than you had before. So the equinox was in uh, 1989. When New Horizons flew past in 2015, the subsolar latitude was about 45 degrees. So that's a large change in just a few decades. And one of the examples of how uh, solar system science is uh, rewarding uh, to those um, willing to spend a career on it. So, you know, what will happen next to Pluto? I mean, we've you've explained how this is, we've been through this period of, you know, fairly intense change uh, compressed into a relatively short span of time. What do you expect will happen to Pluto's surface and, and therefore its atmosphere over the, the rest of your careers? Let, let me answer that briefly and then turn it over to Leslie. So uh, a big question has, has been, when will Pluto's atmosphere freeze out? And will it all freeze out? In other words, will Pluto kind of become like uh, the, the satellite Io around Jupiter, where there are local atmospheres around volcanoes? Will it become like the moon, where you basically have molecules on ballistic trajectories not that far from the surface? Or will it stay a collisional atmosphere, albeit thinner, through its entire, through its entire orbit? It makes some difference in, in subtle ways. Right now, Pluto's atmosphere is thin, but it's thick enough and it's got enough methane that UV photons from the sun generally don't make it down to the surface. They're, they're blocked because the methane is too opaque. And that changes the chemistry that might happen at the surface. You might make some molecules if you didn't have an atmosphere on the surface from photochemistry that in practice you don't make because Pluto has too much methane. Triton, incidentally, might be different. It has about a tenth of methane of, of Pluto. It might be an interesting control phase. So getting back to your question, what's what's the future for Pluto? Its atmosphere is bound to get thinner. We just started to see the first signs of a, of a rollover. It, it had been increasing by about a factor of two per decade. Imagine if the Earth's atmosphere did that, got twice as thick. It, it had been increasing. Uh, even as Pluto was leaving the sun, and only, I'd say, in the last two or three years have people seen occultations where it's starting to stop increasing and, and uh, maybe slightly decrease. And the, uh, the models of what happened next depend crucially on how well the subsurface stores heat and conducts heat. How deep does a thermal wave go? And how hot is the subsurface? How hot did it get? Over, over Pluto's, you know, summer when it was close to the sun. And Leslie knows this more quantitatively than I do, so this is a good time for you to jump in. Before New Horizons got to Pluto, we thought that almost all of Pluto's atmosphere would collapse onto the surface at some point during the year, maybe even twice during the year. Before New Horizons got to Pluto, one of the expectations would be that the nitrogen would freeze out onto the winter pole uh, because you get no sunlight there. So all of the difference between all of the thermal emission on the winter pole had to be made up with the uh, condensation of nitrogen. 
So you would get, you would form a winter nitrogen pole. And when you lost the last of the summer nitrogen pole, the atmosphere, atmospheric pressure would drop very fast. You lose the last of it in just a, an earth year or two, and it would freeze out to almost nothing. You would get a local atmosphere like you do on Io or the moon. And then as the subsolar latitude changed and the old winter pole became the new summer pole, you would get uh, another uh, increase in the pressure. So a lot of the models before we got to New Horizons had two peaks a year and uh, periods where the atmosphere froze out almost entirely. In the couple of years before the New Horizons flyby, in the mid-20-teens, we were getting the observations that showed an in continued increase in pressure. And that suggested that maybe the frost never left the Northern Hemisphere entirely. And so you only had this pattern of one increase a year. So maybe you would get the Southern cap uh, forming and then disappearing. Uh, you would still get a pretty big drop, but not as big a drop. And you would only get this one increase a year. Then we flew past Pluto and we saw Sputnik Planitia. And that says that there is always a source of nitrogen because Sputnik Planitia is a little north of the equator, but it spans the equator. So at every time in Pluto's year, there was some nitrogen available. So changes the definition of what you mean by Pluto's atmosphere collapsing. Mars's atmosphere, which is also supported by its carbon dioxide ice caps, has about a 25% change. That's pretty big, 25% change in pressure. Pluto's is almost certainly at least 100 times. So you can say, well, if 99% if of your atmosphere falls onto the surface, is that a collapse? Yeah, maybe you could call it a collapse, but it's not the it's not a complete collapse. Do we think the atmosphere ever collapses enough that it becomes transparent to ultraviolet? Probably not. Does it ever collapse enough that it becomes a local atmosphere? Probably not. So these are the models now that are based on uh, using the observed pattern of uh, nitrogen that we see on the surface. Aha, you might say, but there's the nitrogen that you don't see on the surface. And that's exactly right and very astute of you for thinking. Because when the New Horizons flew past Pluto, the subsolar latitude was about 45 degrees north. That means that everything south of about 45 degrees uh, in the southern hemisphere had no sunlight on it. Uh, we tried one trick where we looked at Pluto and reflected light from its large moon, Charon. Uh, and we can detect a little bit of the reflected light on Pluto there, but we can't map it out and we certainly can't measure what the ices are down there. So that's the big question. Is there nitrogen ice in the Southern Hemisphere? If there is nitrogen ice in the Southern Hemisphere, that means it's cold enough for the nitrogen to condense, and the nitrogen can continue to condense there, and the nitrogen has a place to go and it sublimes from the Northern Hemisphere much faster than otherwise. If there's no nitrogen ice in the Southern Hemisphere right now, in, in the 
part of the Southern Hemisphere that that we could not image with New Horizons. That says that the thermal inertia of the Southern Hemisphere is high enough that it is still warm, and that will delay or perhaps even completely avoid the condensation of nitrogen onto the Southern Hemisphere. That means that the details of how the pressure is changing, the measurements similar to the ones that Elliot just uh, analyzed, uh, the details of of the the timing of how Pluto's pressure changes will tell us about uh, the thermal inertia of the Southern Hemisphere uh, and the fate of uh, Pluto's atmosphere over the next uh, 100 years. Thank you very much. It's always fascinating to hear about these changes that, as you say, happen over the course of a, of a single career. Elliot and Leslie both, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Margaret. A pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Leslie Young, Elliot Young, and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. If you've made a New Year's resolution to read more books, the latest Physics World Stories podcast is just for you. In it, our very own Andrew Glester, Mateen Durrani, and Laura Hiscott chat about some of the best physics-related books of 2021 including a warts and all study of the role self-publicity played in the fame of the late Stephen Hawking. And they also look at an exposition on how science fiction has helped society deal with rapid technological change. This latest episode of the Stories podcast can be found on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Just look for the title, Physics Books That Captured the Imagination in 2021. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with a lively discussion about how science and scientists are portrayed in the film Don't Look Up.